Welcome to the Powder Keg Podcast, the show that plugs you into the massive opportunities in startups and tech beyond Silicon Valley that are exploding with potential. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and I have a special co-host joining me today, Nate Spangle, our new head of community at Powder Keg. Nate, say hello. Hello, hello. Excited. (laughs) All right, let's do this. Uh, I'm really excited because today I've got two friends in the studio who have been a part of the Powder Keg community since before it was the Powder Keg community. The two co-founders of Lessonly, who have just done an amazing job growing a, a, an awesome team, recently acquired by Seismic, based here in Indianapolis, Indiana, where we are recording out of 76 Forward, the new uh, tech hub right in the middle of downtown Indianapolis at 16 Tech. Max, Connor, super happy to have you here today. Thanks for being here. Sweet spot. Yeah, Amazing. right? Good to be Amazing. here. It's yeah. pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. We are super grateful to have a nice uh, studio set up and have yeah, plenty of space to talk tech, talk passion, talk learning. Yeah, let's talk passion. I like <laughs> I like all the things. All right, let's, let's start with passion. So Max, uh, Connor, uh, for our listeners, j- just for a little context, we've all known each other, I think, a decade now, which is crazy. All four of us in this room right now, including Nate, are part of the OR Fellowship Program, an entrepreneurial fellowship yes. uh, based in Indiana. So I knew you guys way back when, even before Lessonly was an idea. Right. Which is uh, a really cool perspective to have on things, but I'd love to get your perspective on just the early days, Max, when you were just starting Lessonly, can you give us some context of where you were in your life and what was driving you just in terms of your passion? I was winding down my first attempt at a business called Quipple. And there was, a, there was an overlap in there of Quipple winding down, Lessonly winding up. Connor and I are roommates. Uh, so he's kind of seeing my decay, my kind of moral, uh, not moral's not right, my kind of spirit decay. <laughs> my spirit decays as, you know, sure. cripple goes down. Sure. Uh, all my friends know about it. Uh, all my family members know about it. And it's not working. It's just not going in any, anywhere that's, that gives any sign that this is a thing that is going to work. Unless I, and like my only chance I feel like is to do Justin Bieber and Kim Kardashian polls. Because it was pulling software. Yep. And I was like, the only thing that seems to get attention is like stuff I don't want to engage in at all. Like my spirit is not there. Yeah. So I'm winding that down. And Christian uh, Anderson, Mike Fitzgerald, Eric Tobias, they've talked about, uh, they've had a a lot of business ideas floating around. And the one that ultimately we landed on was training software, but we didn't really know for whom. Um, So when Connor and I are living together, kind of sussing out which direction he, I'll let you tell the story of where you took uh, Lessonly for the first time to really test it out and it really changed our trajectory. Yeah, and Connor, you had an exact target at the time, is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And Got acquired uh, later by Salesforce. Yes. So probably biggest software company in Indianapolis and in Indiana yeah. at the time. Yeah, in a span of a year, it was uh, a 50-person startup called Igo Digital that became exact target that became Salesforce. As we got bigger and bigger, I realized the the fit for me was not not the right one, but uh, serendipitously, as Max was describing, he's kind of tinkering around with training software. He's kind of built, I'd call it an MVP. Mm-hmm. There was software there, but there wasn't much. Right. And, you know, my job through these acquisitions essentially became training. I was doing sales, but one of the things in an acquisition you learn pretty quick is the only way you unlock the value of the acquisition is to enable the bigger sales force. So, 50-person startup, all of a sudden, we got to teach a 1,000 exact target reps how to go sell exact uh, this, this new product they have. And so my job essentially became be a worldwide trainer. I went to Australia, <laughs> London, and at the time, Max was working on this early idea for Lessonly and just said, hey, can I try this out? Like, I literally am going to do training, and they literally, their strategy is to send me, a 23-year-old, 
they're a multinational global company and they're sending me a 23 year old to train these really important sales reps. And I thought, man, if, if Salesforce can't figure this out, there's probably something here. And I'd say we both were naive to the market. We didn't know a whole lot about the space, but it was enough to say like a couple of customers paying us and a big company seems to need this. Like, happens yeah salesforce never became a customer but no. but but connor used it as a salesforce employee you know and, yeah. we, and he came and it worked right you you flew to australia and oh got there gosh. and people people already knew what you needed them to know yeah the funniest part about it was i think they sent me there for a month like i had a sweet gig i was in sydney 23 sweet hotel all expensive paid and in about a week i was like i think my job's done here because i had sent them all these lessons everybody had been trained and i got there and they're just like hey help me sell these deals not teach me how to do this so i was like I'd say this worked. I yeah. was just kind of sitting there enjoying Australia and then off we went. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, first customer, second customer, third customer, ninth customer. And now we're here one customer at a time. <laughs> <laughs> one that's awesome. hard fought customer at a time. So I didn't realize that, that Salesforce wasn't a customer. They were just a user. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Probably that's super valuable protocols. And oh, no doubt. You security. No doubt. Yeah, yeah. 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 All that for but. sure. For sure. That's, I, hope, I hope they don't fire you. Yeah, exactly. It's good, it's a good, good way to road test it. Good way to road test it. That's awesome. So t- tell me a little bit about the idea to join forces and really go after go after this. Uh, so Max, Connor, like I think of you two as very much yin and yang, very complementary skill sets. Did you get that right off the bat when you were looking at working together or were you kind of looking to fill a specific need, Max and, and Connor, were you looking for something that was kind of a little bit more startup again. I know how I'd describe it. I'm curious how you would. I definitely knew from the jump we were very different. Yep. You know, I love sports. Max loves music. So you take the anything we do, like it's pretty, we're opposite sides of the coin in a lot of ways. But I think fundamentally, uh, we just always got along. I right. mean, we moved in as roommates, like not really knowing each other uh, and just quickly connected. And I think Max is super good at just being open and vulnerable and pursuing people, as you've probably felt, Matt. And I was one of those people. So I felt like, huh, this guy, he's probably the the best friend I have in the shortest amount of time. You know, it takes a long time to build a friendship, but I, I evaluated it like, this guy is really investing in me, and I feel like we're great friends in a matter of months, you know, which was a cool, cool feeling. And then, you know, when we looked at our skill sets on paper, Max loved product and culture and I had experience in go to market. So like all of our skill sets were basically the opposite. And then I think as the company evolved, I would say Max really brought the heart and the soul of the culture. I brought a little bit more of the drive and the competitiveness and how are we going to play this big game and win this space. And the two together, I'm not sure we could have done it because neither of us have the opposite skill set. Yeah, I think that's right. I I I, I do think that uh, the myth is that I brought the culture and the spirit, but that's a myth. You brought your own parts of that culture and spirit that I revere, you know, like that I am like, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way, but I'm so glad you do it that way. Corey Kime did the same, Mitch Cousin did the same, Mike Wendell did the same, Evan, and then Carly, and like so on and so forth. I think we brought openness to like, hey, Mm -hmm. if it's collaborative and if it is, you know, loving and supportive and and creativity-inducing, we're all for it. And that kind of open spirit but like, let's say you come in and like, if, if the myth is to believe if I bring the culture, if you, if you would have brought a, a kind of classic sales, uh, classics, maybe the wrong term, what people think of when they think of sales. Stereotypical. Yeah, yeah. Stereotypical. Yeah. Hard driving, kind of hard nosed, like, uh, but that's never what you brought. Right. Um, you brought a very, uh, 
thoughtful approach to sales, which is just like, let's be genuine with people who, if they want it, great. We'll give it to them. If they don't want it, that's okay. You know, we won't shove it down your throats, but we'll believe in what we sell. You know, so if we see an opportunity to help somebody, we're not just going to be like, we're not just going to walk away. If, uh, you know what I mean? Like he's got, you're going to, you actually, you, you pursued people right. who you thought you could help, 100%. Uh, but didn't shove it down their throats. Yeah. Right. And that changes the whole business. Cause we ended up being a sales driven culture. As much as I wish I could say we were a product-driven culture, I owe, I've always struggled to keep the, you know, the products where I needed it to be. Why do you think that is? I, I, I just think probably lack of experience. I think I'd probably just build product, start building product differently. Didn't cut losses on kind of uh, paths when we should have, you know, like just not knowing what to do because I've never done it before. Um, I also think, to be fair, it was a resourcing thing too. As you know, in our nine years ago startup environment, was less prolific in fundraising. We weren't the, you know, we didn't always put as uh, huge amounts of money on the balance sheet. And so, you know, the kind of business equation became, well, we could hire into sales and we can see and logically see how this is going to return something and how it helps us not run out of money. Whereas hiring five more engineers, obviously that's a smart long-term bet, but yes. it's harder to see how that's going to not help us not run out of money. And we eventually got there towards the very end. Right at the very say. end. Yeah, yeah. We came up with a, it was called our product and engineering stimulus bill, just aggressive hiring at the very last six months. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like getting the right product management ratio and designer ratio to engineers, great, like great things, great. things that, you know, we, we, if we invested in the product, we, we always put more into engineering than we did the product marketing and uh, product design side. And so just all the stuff I just, we just didn't know, yeah. you know? And so that was, so we ended up being, you know, I think a sales led culture that was very, you know, product oriented uh, and cultural oriented. But yeah, I think the myth is that one person does that and I just don't think that's true. And you know, think and, and I think another thing to point out that I find to be very important is Corey Kime, Mitch Cosi join us. Mitch kind of would run when uh, like as fast as Connor and I did, but Corey was all uh, Corey was always always asked questions before we started running. So, it became like this really clear uh it wasn't just a yin yang thing, it was like this is an ensemble. Different people bring different vibes. Yep. And because we're open enough to respect one another's vibes and to not think we're sm the smartest person in the room, people show up and they ask the questions that are on their mind and we get smarter as a result. You know, so Corey would be like, Hey, that's a really nice idea. And I can see you all are very fired up about it. You know, he would not be condescending. He would just be like, yeah. Hey, interesting. I have a few questions. And then as he asked those questions, he'd be like, Oh, we have not given this so much thought. Right. <laughs> you know? uh, well, now I, I would like to dig in more on that dynamic please. too, because I, I think Corey is one of those like unsung heroes of uh, Leslie's early success. Yes. But also Nate, feel free to jump in here. If, if you've got questions, uh, you know, entrepreneur yourself, Nate, I, I know, uh, you're, you've done your own startups and so feel free to jump in yeah. when you've got questions, man. Of course. Yeah. So, uh, Corey, interesting third leg of the stool early on and brought a really interesting dynamic. When you think about culture comes from the top, it's, mm -hmm. it's you, Max, but it's also you, Connor. It's also Corey. And of yeah. course it's everyone on the team. Right following the, the lead mm -hmm. of the three of you. Talk to me a little bit more about how Corey's energy helped balance you two out in those early days. Yeah, I'll just say for me, he, he, him and Connor are very steady. Well, I, I see myself to be kind of emotional swings. You know, things are going well. I kind of ride, ride the highs and I, and I dive into the lows, you know, like just a lot less emotional stability. And I found that him and Connor brought a lot of emotional stability. Yeah. Like something would hit the fan and they would both approach it as like, okay, and I'd be like, oh no, you know. <laughs> um, and that's that's a, a great thing to have, right? It's people who just kind of are calm. Yeah. And so Corey has always been calm, uh, and you know he's he led our client experience kind of post sales team from 
the first person to be hired from it was him and the person to run it all the way to the acquisition is him. And he, that team just got bigger and bigger and more multifaceted and he scaled across the board, you know, uh, and did it in a very steady way. So steadiness is what, what, what I bring from Corey. And then, you know, inquisitiveness, the value of asking clarifying questions is a value that I, I ascribe to kind of his, I saw him do that so much and saw the value of it because of him. Yeah. You know, I learned it from him. I also think the skill set he brought at the time, you know, he led all of our post sales work, but he also played a very important role in shaping the product. Like he never had a formal product title, but I imagine we could have veered so far off course without him because we had this, you know, kind of natural constraint. We had two 20 hour a week engineers first. That was our only engineering firepower. So we spent way more time debating what should be built before we actually built something because we just couldn't. And Corey was always the person to make sure we didn't invest too much in one direction or another where Max and I might have full conviction because I talked to a prospect or Max just liked the idea and liked mm-hmm. the design of it. Corey was very practical about we're in a resource constrained world. Let's make the most of it. And as Max said, let's make sure we listen to customers um, and interpret that and put it into patterns we can use. Pattern recognition. Yeah. And he, he was very good at not going for the flash. Mm. Like if, yeah. if it helped us in the flash kind of early sale, he was not impressed because he's like, I have customers who, while that's nice in the early sale, like it doesn't necessarily translate into value. That's a balance, right? Like something that kind of pumps somebody up. But then he's like, I got the customers over here who need this feature that is not sexy at all, but they need it. It's making it harder for us to do our jobs. And so his consistency and able to do that for nine years when we never learned the lesson, not never, like never learned these lessons of like, oh yeah, we have to invest that, you know, equally on both sides. The fact that he stuck around is a wonder because he was consistent in what he asked for and didn't always, you know, we, we weren't always as thoughtful as we probably could have been. We were kids. I mean, we all are at heart. Yeah. 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 I, want, I still want to be a kid. <laughs> yeah. I just absolutely. want to learn from my uh, experiences. Did, did it feel like that kind of energy early on? Like it was kind of a playground or did you feel like you were taking it pretty seriously because this was your second startup mm-hmm. and you really wanted it to work? It was not a playground for me. Yeah. No, it was very, I, I stressed for, I really stressed until very recently. What changed? Well, we sold the business. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like very, very recently. Yeah. 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 I mean, I knew two years ago that it wasn't going to just disappear overnight. Sure. But it took seven years to really have a, like, a oh, it won't. Yeah. You know, like for the first seven years, I was like, what if somebody comes out with something that's free and they're good and it's good, you know, and they, they, they can sell it as a loss leader. You know, and just just kind of cripple us. Yeah, that was always my fear: is that you know Google was going to come out with something beautiful yeah. in the training space, and they were going to not need to really sell it because that's not where they make their money. And that fear carried for a long time. So in the year seven, we closed our first seven-figure deal. The business was on fire. I mean, mm-hmm. at this point, we are stacking you know a ten million dollars on top of ten million dollars, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is a pretty big business, you know. Um, so that's when I was like, it's probably not going to go away. But until we joined forces with Seismic, I felt like I was always had this lingering fear in my back of my head of, we, the reason why we wanted to join forces with Seismic in a big way was we needed to be able to keep competing, yeah. right? And we had been this independent entity for almost a decade, sure, um, selling pretty much one thing the whole time. And Seismic now brings us a whole new arsenal of things that we pair them together. And I have no doubt we're going to do very well together, you know? So that was when I was like, you know, uh, there. but it did not feel like a playground. And I wish it would have, but like, we can't rewrite history. It feels I'm having more creative expression now and fun now. You know? Sure. Sure. A little looser now. How about you, Connor? How were you feeling during those early days? I very similar. I think it felt 
amongst the two of us and Corey and Mitch, like we got a lot to prove is what it always felt like. We're, we're kind of young, felt like I eh, probably didn't deserve an opportunity like this at age 24. It's a competitive market. It just felt like there was always something to prove. Mm-hmm. And even when we hit the next milestone, a million in revenue, a hundred customers, a thousand customer, it always felt like there was some foundation of sand somewhere that could crumble. Yeah. And especially because if you think about the nine year arc, we benefited a ton from just this up into the right economy. Businesses are doing well. You know, we, we had a ton of luck in that way, mm-hmm. but at the same time, software was getting this premium valuation on purely growth. Right. Yeah. And we were never like, we were always a high growing business that was really capital efficient, not a top 1% growing business that wasn't capital efficient. And all of a sudden the like, the way software businesses were viewed became through this lens of growth. So what became very clear, at, even as we got bigger, was, yeah, we're not going to disappear overnight. But if we're in 25 million, not pretty quickly getting to 50, the enterprise value of this company that we've worked for nine years to build is going to plummet. And that means everyone who owns stock in the company, which is everybody, all 250 people at Lessonly, don't get to get to a finish line and a win that we all wanted. So. It just never felt yeah. like a playground. Yeah, because we had to multiply. I mean, our growth had to be 50% year over year, 75% year over year, you know, and depending. Yeah. And it was, yeah, like Connor said, if we grew, if we were going 10% year over year at a 50 million outcome, I mean, we never got there, right? We joined Force Select before we yeah. hit 50 mil, but we were going 25 to 50. And if we were going 10% year over year as a $50 million company, we don't get much of a premium on our valuation, right? right. Let's say we get a 5X. Yep. Okay. So that's $250 million business. Yep. Uh, you know, as a $25 million business, if we're going like we were 76%, we get a 10X. So we're already at that valuation that we, two years earlier, right? Yeah. And so it's almost a big risk kind of continuing to go. Sure. If our growth rate doesn't stay, and it's not easy to keep that growth rate up because the base is getting bigger. You know, it's like, oh, just, I'm so, it's, it, it was just constant, it's nonstop. Well, it's interesting too, because when I think about Lessonly, I, I think of it uh, as kind of a quintessential Midwest startup tech company story, you know, in that sense, not raising the huge mega rounds that you're seeing on TechCrunch mm-hmm. in the Bay Area and New York, more so in the middle of the country now, mm-hmm. certainly than 10 years yeah. ago. Chicago raised yeah, big rounds. Chicago yeah. raising big, big rounds. Even here. I mean, yeah, you know, right. Meta CX raised a huge round before they even had a product or yep. a customer. Yep. Yep. There's obviously been a big cultural shift, but in terms of the culture of Lessonly, do you think it would have been more stressful or less stressful with more capital? Probably a yin yang thing, right? In some spots, it would have sure. been more painful. In other spots, it would have been sure. um, went more winded or back. I wouldn't do it any differently, you yeah. know, because we got to where we needed it to go. Like, let's, let's, I'll be real quick on this, but we were going to raise $3 million in our series A and ended up raising five. Mm. And uh, because OpenView Venture Partners, who uh, ended up doing our A and our B round, great, great firm. Gosh, couldn't love them more. We're like, hey, you're the earliest in revenue we've ever invested in a company, and $3 million is not, we can't enough into the business if you only raise three mm. so would, we, would you potentially raise five which to us we were like well that's almost twice as much that's a little scary you know mm-hmm. what a big difference it made though to raise five we ended up being able to hire people who we wouldn't have been able to afford um who are still with the business today who made dramatic impacts on the business um we ended up being able to make investments that we wouldn't have been able to make and it was only because they asked us to take a couple more million bucks you know like we w- had no plans to raise five million dollars it was like they got the term sheet and they're like but only way we do this term sheet is you raise two more how lucky was that? No, oh, so lucky. How lucky was that? <laughs> <laughs> so like, who the heck knows, you know, yeah. what would have been right or wrong? It just would have been a different permutation. For for those who, whether they're a founder or co-founder or even just an early employee at a startup, 
what are some of the things that you've learned over this journey with Lessonly mm -hmm. in terms of managing stress, in terms of getting that state of flow and maybe not riding the wave quite so much? I shouldn't say riding the wave, but getting pulled under by, yeah. by the undercurrents. Sure. Yeah, I think one is a bit of a paradox, which is you have to be maniacally focused on results. Uh, but at the same time, you have to let those go. Like short-term results this quarter are not going to break or make or break the business. And so I think you have to find a way to get yourself out of that in those mm -hmm. early stages where it feels like there's so much pressure and it feels like the business is going to die if we don't hit this quarter. But you've got to find a way to think beyond that horizon and say, let's let's fight for these results. Let's bring some excellence to the way we operate this business. But at the same time, if we fall a little bit short this quarter, let's look 12 months from now and are we making the right investments? That's That's been a hard, nothing, something we never did, mm. but I wish we would have had that mentality. I think we would have made different decisions along the way, perhaps. And if we approached it, maybe more like a playground or an art form and said, what do we want this to be long-term? Uh, as opposed to what do we want this to be in the next 90 days, we never really got out of that cycle, in my opinion. No, I'm with you. And I just don't know. I don't know if I could have gotten there when it's it's my it's the, the, the only, only thing, thing I've yeah. ever really built that it brings kind of value. You know, like like it, this is this is the this is my whole net worth is in this business. Right. Mm -hmm. And the bigger it gets. Uh, the scarier that gets, yep. yeah. you know, and it doesn't feel like a playground when you're, when you're playing with potentially my entire future. Right. You know? So I have a feeling that if I had the energy to do it again, could be more playground with it. Don't know if it works very well. Cause I'm sure there's some, yeah. you know, there's some <laughs> amount of fear that kind of helped drive us and kind of keep us, keep us on the ball. Sure. I don't have that energy to go do that, but like if I did, I would probably, it would feel a little more, Oh yeah, it's okay. Yeah. But I just don't know anybody who's doing that at the start who feels that maybe there are people out there, but it wasn't yeah. me. And I, you asked about stress. I kind of veered the question. I, I think a partnership, a healthy partnership is, I, I don't know how you build a business without it in mm -hmm. my, you know, like. And you're talking about business partnership or you're business talking about partnership. partnership? Both ways, actually. I was going <laughs> to take business partnership first. Like there was many times where I'm at a peak stress moment and Max isn't. And so we kind of balance each other out other way around. And I can show up for him in those non-stress mm -hmm. moments. And I can take on a little more in those moments and vice versa. And I think without that, it's just a lonely perch that burns you out way faster. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's one. And then a second, I think partner wise, and Max would probably say the same. I have a partner and a wife that just didn't take it too serious as, as I did. She helped me realize this is not life and death. You know, when it came to stress, it was like, hey, do your best, work hard. But look, you're not curing the world of cancer here. Like we're building a software company that a lot of people like to work at and it's super cool and enticing, but don't put the weight of the world on your back. Like if this doesn't work, the world's going to end. And right. I think that perspective, she comes from a very different background. She's a social worker by trade and just being out of tech and startups completely when I walked home every day really helped the stress levels. No doubt. I'm so glad Jess was not in tech. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm so glad she didn't want to come home and talk about ARR. You right. know, like she didn't, she couldn't, she didn't know what that was, yeah. you know, it wasn't interesting to her and she didn't marry me for it, you know, for the, for the company. I mean, we started dating when we were four people and there wasn't much there to marry for, you know, yeah. like it was, she it was like, it was, it was like, she didn't really understand what it even was. She was like, that's kind of cool that you're, you know, doing your own thing. But how that was going to work was it's not why we got started dating. It's not why we kept dating. Right. Yep. So she never asked me how the quarter went. She knew she could feel it when I, when the quarter wasn't going well, you know, <laughs> sure. but, but she didn't need it to work. 
and never, never once felt any pressure from her to do that right. Cause she'd remind me again and again, it's not why I married you. It's not why I love you. All the things that I love about you exist, whether you're doing lessonly or not, which is what a relief, you know, what a relief. And then yeah, to the, to the partnership internally, I don't know how anybody does it without that. Like, I just don't know how it's sustainable because it's, it's not sustainable even with that, right? Like it's, it's hard even with that, you know, sure. it's, uh, and I just, I think there is something to be said for not only the partnership, but the ensemble, uh, that if you get that right, that one person, like you said, can be in a crisis while four yeah. people are maybe in a, not in a crisis, you know, yeah. but we have this culture of there's one person who's going out there and driving everybody forward. And there's one leader and that's never how it was at Lessonly. It was different people were leading when they had different strengths to lead, you know, or different perspectives to lead. And I was never, I was never, it never bothered me. I was very grateful to be like, I don't know what to do here. There are things I've told you this, Matt, that um, when we went into seismic, that uh, some of the folks at seismic just naturally thought a CEO should know, you know, like, <laughs> don't you know these metrics? Don't you know these numbers? And I was like, I've never known them. Yeah. I've never known them. Connor's always known them. And I, I've never known how to do the things that you're asking me how to do. And I don't think I ever will. You know, 10 years in, I don't think I ever will. It's just not where my head is, you sure. know? Ultimately, they kind of were like, okay, I'm starting to get it now. He does this stuff, you do that stuff. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, odd. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of folks find it odd because I think the CEO, uh, a lot of times mentally, tells themselves that they have to be able to do all of it. And I think I was just very lucky because that was never a condition for me. It was like, I don't, I don't know how I would do all of it. You know? <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. So I think that helped. That's great. That's yeah. great that you had that. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, I'd like to ask about um you guys' company culture and, and your employer brand it seems to be in my eyes a superpower of lessonly right and from two guys who started this super young it's not like you had a ton of experience or a decade working at best places to work and wherever how did you guys build that and why out of all the things that that would that be where you put stock into i don't know where else you put stock in like, <laughs> and culture like that it's in my dna to be like the way people emotionally feel when they show up here is the most important thing, like our teammates, emotional state. And then, it, you know, it ultimately bears out in a bunch of science, but like, you really don't need science to tell you that when somebody's comfortable, they're more open, you know, they'll, and that we, we constantly need people to point out potential opportunities, potential threats. If somebody is scared, they will do that a lot less. If somebody feels safe, they will do that a lot more. So now we have a bunch of people helping us build a better business instead of just us having to be the only eyes out there and everybody going, well, they're not asking for my opinion. They don't seem to want my opinion. So we'll just leave it to them to kind of, you know, see the opportunity and see the threats. We were like, hey, listen, we've never done this before. If you don't point out potential opportunities or threats, we're screwed. And we, want, and we think you're smart. You know, you're, you're not just a warm butt in a seat to fill up the office. You know, like you are a working brain who has a lot to offer. So I think that ultimately is like a, a, a loving, a trusting environment of like, let's have fun together. And if you have a good idea, we want to hear it. And that creates a flywheel that starts spinning people feel uncomfortable. And that guess what happens when people feel comfortable? They do put out the opportunities and threats and then we can get on top of them. You know, somebody's like, hey, we've got this cultural issue over here and I love this place so much, I'm gonna bring it up before it gets out of hand. Yeah. How many times did that help save our freaking butts? Oh, save. It's because cause somebody who saw something, we were not around because the company kept getting bigger, right? We just weren't in those rooms. And was like, I'm nervous about if this continues, what it's gonna do to the business. If people are scared, they don't tell us that. Um, so like, that's why first, in the nucleus of everything is culture to me because it determines everything else. How much do you think that played into the acquisition? How do you mean? How much uh, did Lesson Lee's employer brand, Lesson Lee's team play into the acquisition, the strategic multiple, and you don't need to disclose numbers or anything, yeah, yeah. but from a standpoint, 
huge successful outcome for Lessonly, all of your team members. And I love any context or color that you can yeah. provide there, dimension to uh, what that experience was like, everyone winning together. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that companies that have a strong brand, not just in the customer marketplace, but have a strong brand in the talent marketplace, tend to get bigger valuations, more interest in acquisition, uh, have a bigger outcome. But I'm, I'm curious if that played in at all in the conversations with Leslie and Seismic. 100%, yeah. I mean, very few people in the software world are in a space where they don't have a litany of competitors these days. Like, There's very few original software companies that are just attacking some greenfield that no one else is looking at. <laughs> right. Um, and product differentiation is fleeting, right? You get a little bit ahead and somebody copies you and then you get a little bit behind and you got to catch up. So I think in a lot of ways it's becoming more and more a dimension that is on, you know, when somebody, a strategic acquirer says, I want to go after this space. I think it's, and, and Seismic as much told us this, like culture is one of the dimensions we look at. We look at the growth, we look at the metrics, we look at the product and we look at the team and the culture. And, you know, one thing the head of Corp Dev at Seismic shared with us that I thought was pretty cool. He's like, look, when you're buying a company that's five people, the culture is the five people and probably the two founders or the three or four ensemble players that we've been talking about. Like, that's what you're buying. You're buying four people. That's the culture. But when you're 250 people, you're buying the culture and the culture is absent the two of you. Like, whether you exist, these 250 teammates you have, this is what's going to make this acquisition. Culture shifts from being like personally focused on an individual to a collectivism that they're buying. So Mm -hmm. I I thought that was pretty cool. And how much did that weigh into their decision about what product to partner with and what business to buy? I don't really know, but it seems like it was, it was super important to them. Yeah. They wanted, they said many times that they, uh, of all the folks they looked at, they really wanted to work with us. Like they enjoyed working with us. And two or three years before Matt uh, Lubbers, who was leading our partnerships, director of partnerships, he's linking arms with seismic and you know, he's kind of him and him and uh, um, Ross Reinhardt, uh, lean engineer who built, builds the integration. They are kind of the two people who Seismic sees. Uh, mm. and, and there was more than that, right? Like Josh Frankel, they see him too. But but I think Ross for a long time was kind of spinning yeah, on that. Matt was spinning lesson. on it. Yeah. yeah. And that's the window into Lessonly. And, and uh, these folks who they get exposed to, they're like, oh, the corp dev person talks to the people who work with them and, and says, we like working with them. And what a better, what a good sign, you know, for, for a, a big deal like this one is that people already like working together. There's no way it works otherwise, you know, like this, like don't, don't bother, you know, if like this is going to be oil and water and it wasn't. So that helped us in a, in a, in a, in a really big way. Talk to me a little bit more about what it was like talking to your team, uh, and letting them know, Hey, Lessonly is graduating to this next level of growth with seismic. Yeah. I'm going to start by just saying one thing Connor and I talked about a lot was where do we think the business is going to go? And we said there's only three, three routes. One is we stay how we are right now and we pay dividends to shareholders over time. Like we grow the business and never sell it. It just, we always thought that was a low like, likelihood because it was venture funded, you know, like venture funded businesses tend to either get acquired or go public. Yep. So then we talk about acquisition, which is the second one. And we said, this is the highest likelihood just statistically. Like if we hit a freaking a tailwind, we might be able to go public, but we have to be growing faster than we are right now and have to have a bigger uh, market to kind of lean into if that's going to happen. And we'll probably have to be 100 to $200 million in revenue, and we're nowhere close to that, you know? <laughs> so um, so we said we're probably going to get acquired just by definition of how things go. And the best companies in the world, people want to buy them, you know? Like they, people hunt for the best companies in the world. So if we just do our job building a great business, 
naturally probably we, we probably get bought. So our teammates knew that, and we were very clear on that. We weren't we were never building the business to get acquired. We were trying to build a great business and knew that that's probably going to be the outcome, right? Ultimately, it would be we always knew it would be fun for us to be like, oh, if that happens, that'd be really cool. How did you communicate that to the team? We or, said that. We yeah. said, I mean, all of this. Yeah. Like, it, it's not, if we start building to be acquired, we probably won't get acquired, right? <laughs> yeah, right. If, if we build a business, like another paradox, right? If we build a business just to make a great company, we're probably very likely to get acquired, right? Yeah. And, and and so I think that is maybe a confusing thing to know that we're probably going to get acquired, but then not build to get acquired, you know? You build to build a great business and then you might get acquired. So we communicated that again and again to the team. Yep. All Every time they came on board, people would ask, where is this going? And we communicate those things. Mm-hmm. So then one, one fun thing on that, yeah, I would please. say there was a, I would say a week in the company where the two of us were probably in the opposite mindset. We were in the mindset of, well, we've been doing this a while. Maybe we should get serious about getting acquired, mm-hmm. like more purposefully. Mm-hmm. So we take this trip out to San Francisco. We've got all these meetings teed up with Corp Dev from every big tech company you can imagine. And we go for three days, meet all of them. Not one of them's interested in the slightest. Uh, we think we have, like, this is a, we feel like we're flying, like, this is a great time. This was after Max described, like, 2019, we're coming off maybe the best year, best growth we've ever seen. We were just on no one's board. And what I mean by that is nobody had the, our category as a top priority. Right. It didn't matter how good of a business we built. And it was very sobering trip in that way. And I think that was one of the first, like, one of the first, that that was, it hit us in the face because it was like, we're, we're. We got to just keep going. We just got to build a better business and let these cards shake out because we're not going to force this to shake out. Anyway, sorry. To- oh no, that, I'm almost, I'm, I was I was pretty much done. But uh, like to pile onto that, Connor bounced back from that. In my perspective, way quicker, more quickly than I did. I was like defeated, and he was like, "Well, we got to go back and keep building the business," which is another reason it's so important to have an ensemble and a partnership. Is like if it would have just been me sitting there defeated and nobody else to be like, "I'm going to keep going." I mean, just he just carried it. And I was like, sad, you know, yeah. <laughs> like I was like, you know, kind of self pity, you know, yeah. um, but like you were like, well, that didn't work how we wanted it to. So we, now I got to keep hitting the numbers. And so just again, really helps, but I want to pass it back to you. A reason I said the thing of like, Hey, we might do dividends. We might do acquisition. We might do going public is people knew that that was part of the plan, right? Yep. Is that one of those things was going to happen. And then we got to go tell them. So do you want to talk about the experience of going to tell people that, you know, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, we've, we've sold the business and we can share bits of that. I don't know how much you want to get into that, but once we get to the point where we've signed a definitive agreement, which was a six to 12 month saga, mm-hmm. but once we got there, we're running on fumes cause it's just been a full on six months, but we get to this point where the company doesn't know the deal signed and we have like a few days before we're going to tell the whole company. And so we decided to pull, you know, basically the first 20 employees, uh, for all intensive purposes aside and say, Hey, here's what's happening. And honestly, it was the best week in the company in the nine years. I think uh, there were many good weeks, but there were not as many meaningful interactions as those. Mm-hmm. It led to tears. It led to goosebumps. It, and it wasn't, you know, it obviously had a big financial implication for a lot of people. That was part of it. But I think the bigger part that almost everyone just, you could feel the pride in, I worked so hard at this for however long, five, six, seven years, and this is something I'm super proud of. This outcome, I'm so proud of. And we did it. And at that time, we're burnt out. And I told Max, this, this is why you start a company. Mm-hmm. Like this week reminded me, that feeling reminded me. Uh, and I wasn't in that mindset. I was mm-hmm. like relieved. Like, oh, we got there. 
Uh, and it just re-energized me to think like, this is why people do this. This, this week is why people do this. Yeah. And Connor's said that like, if, if somebody comes to him and starting a business, you know, urging them to give employees stock, 100%. you know, like give them options because that doesn't always happen. And it would have felt very different if we would have been holding stock right. and we would have hit that finish line and people would have just, and many people said this when we told them what, what happened, they said, we did it. Like those were the three words, the same ones he said, we did it. Like that was, and I was like, yes, precisely, you know, we did it. Um, but then they said, this has never been easy. So many times people said, this job has never been easy. You know, like, which I hope people understand when we talk about having a culture that, uh, you know, that uh, we like, it had a lot of problems. It was never easy. You know, it would have been a lot harder if we had a culture we didn't like, you know, because that would sure. have just been miserable. Yeah. Um, but even having a culture we liked, those all have shadows, right? The brightest culture has a bright shadow or a big dark shadow. Yeah? And ours did too. But like people were like, it's never been easy. So this is so much more satisfying because mm. I busted my ass, you know, again and again and again and again. And then, yes, we freaking did it. You know, it was amazing. I get shivers just thinking about it. I mean, yeah, worth every day. I wouldn't ever do it again. But worth every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Wouldn't quote. do another nine years to get there is what yeah. I mean. You know, yeah. but it was freaking worth it. Yes. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate you sharing that story and keeping an eye on time. I, I, I could ask you another hour of questions about uh, what's next with Seismic, but uh, maybe you could just give me the, the elevator version of that. Lessonly and Seismic, what does that mean for Lessonly? What does that mean for the Midwest and the Unvalley? You know, Seismic's out of uh, San Diego. Yeah. So very much an Unvalley company. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, they've got offices around, you know, primarily San Diego, Boston, and then global offices as well. I, I would say one thing first, before we get to what it means, like Indianapolis was a huge advantage. You know, we talked about culture as an advantage. Uh, Indianapolis was an advantage in and of itself for the talent and for just the different way of thinking, I think. And, you know, the cost of doing business here uh, would be the third. So they liked all of those things. So what it means for Indianapolis is investment roles that are not just lessonly roles will get hired here. You know, and I think the Indianapolis footprint gets bigger for Seismic as it has at Salesforce and others, um, which is really cool. So I, I think where we're going together, it's it's a neat combination. And we've been in it two months and it's it's been really unbelievable to see what a bigger force can help you do that you couldn't have done on your own. Yeah. You know, we had, as an example, been working for, I would call it three years. Max told you we closed a seven-figure deal, but we were trying to, to kind of move into the enterprise. That was our growth path. Mm -hmm. And we were rolling a ball slowly uphill on that journey. Uh, and in the first two months, uh, it's been unbelievable to join forces with somebody who has enterprise in their DNA. Watch how fast that's accelerated. It's yeah. unbelievable. Deals we would have never dreamed of doing just pop into the pipeline and we've got a good process to do it and they've got a team to do it and they love the product and they come together nice. So it's been, I'm making that sound super easy. Um, <laughs> Much easier than it Much was. Much easier than it was. It was Sisyphus, man. Yeah. The rock fell back down every damn day, it right. felt like, on the enterprise. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's hard. The, the growth, I think you can just see it accelerating, and, and it's because the combination of these two things uh, just made so much sense. And, and by that, I mean uh, Seismic's really great at helping a seller deliver content to buyers. So, helping a seller find their pitch decks and their case studies and their white papers and make sure those get delivered to the right prospect at the right time. That's kind of their, their core competency. With that, you need great sales reps to deliver great content. You need, they need to know how to deliver the pitch deck, when to send the case study. That's where Lessonly comes in. So the two together, training, coaching, and content, 
uh, is really the the future we're building together. And I think, you know, the hope is eventually we get to be the next important sales investment after Salesforce, after the CRM, because sales enablement is a category that's going to keep growing. It's training, coaching, and content now. It's, it's going to keep getting bigger. Thank you guys for coming and sharing your story. And hopefully we can check in again in a year or two and hear how Seismics continue to uh, grow and scale and would love to. Let's schedule it for two hours. We need more time. I love it. <laughs> yeah, thank, I love thanks, it. man. Let's Let's do it. Fun. Thank thanks, you, guys.